0: And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And if you're like me, and I know I am, you love a great story. And I've got one for you today. Walt Larimore is going to be joining me in just a minute, but I want to tell you about his book that he's written. It's called At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. And it has a lot to do with uh, someone he's very close to. And he'll tell you about it. But he uh, uh, chronicles an c- incredible story of a, um, a World War II experience, and it's uh, it's riveting. When I looked at some of the praise for At First Light, and it says, The story is extraordinary, a forgotten hero, tough combat, tragic sacrifice, a marvelous horse, and an astonishing ending. Don't miss this remarkable book. That was from General David Petraeus. So awfully excited to have uh, Walt on the show. Uh,
1: Walt, Welcome. Bill, it's great to be with you, and I love that music bit. Oh my gosh, I, I'm showing my age enjoying those '70s. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, there's more to come in this hour. Just so you know, Walt. Now you've you've written over 40 books, and uh, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Well, I uh, grew up in Louisiana. My wife and I met when we were in kindergarten and we grew up together. Our dads were best friends. They were college professors, and um, we would uh, vacation together and take baths together, and and then (laughs) went went to school and then high school together, and then in high school, we started dating, and then her mother got really weird about that spending the night together and bathing together thing, but we both went to harvard on the bayou that's what we call lsu (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. It, it was there that the lord found us uh through uh through the ministries of campus crusade the navigators and although we had both gone to church our whole lives um we we grew up together spiritually and then uh i felt like maybe i was being called into ministry and I applied to seminary, and I didn't get in, and I applied to Campus Crusade staff and didn't get on, I applied to medical school and got in, and so ended up, uh, Barb put me through medical school, went overseas for a fellowship, a teaching fellowship, and then came back to do a medicine, uh, family medicine and sports medicine residency at Duke, and have been a practicing family physician for over 40 years, oh. father of two, grandfather of two, and, uh, the last twenty years or so, have kind of delved into the into the writing world. It's been a real joy, though I tell you. Mm-hmm. Well, this uh,
0: story that we're going to hear about today involves someone near and dear to you. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, it's my it's my dad. You know, I, I'm I grew up in the '50s and '60s, and so all the boys in the neighborhood. I mean, we watched World War II epics on TV and watched war movies at the theater, and I. Bill, I really wanted to believe that my daddy had been brave and courageous when he fought in the war. Maybe he, he was an unknown hero like another Audie Murphy, uh, someone. The reason I wanted, I wanted him to be so I could brag about it to my friends, but he never talked about his his war years as a soldier. So I, I couldn't match the, the tales that the other boys told. And I asked my mom, I remember asking her several times, why won't he talk about it? And she would just say he, he doesn't like to talk about it, and, and I understand why now. Uh, Bill, I've researched this book for 16 years. I've traveled to dozens of archives, camps, forts, museums, cemeteries uh, in the U.S. and, and in Europe, and, uh, you know, I knew Dad had lost his leg, and I thought, well, that's probably a good reason he's not talking, but as I studied the war, I began to see why men didn't talk about it. In Dad's case, in 1999, he and Mom celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And my brothers and I were with him, and I had been asked at our church to preach a sermon that year on July 4th called Freedom Isn't Free. And so their their anniversary was about a month before that. So we were all sitting around after a meal together, and I told Dad I was going to preach that sermon. I said, is there anything— You can tell me just you can tell us about the war. And and I don't know, Bill, I guess he was feeling nostalgic after a half century of marriage, of keeping his past concealed. But for whatever reason, he decided that that was the right moment to start sharing his story. And uh, he thought in Europe, he, he said, alongside two million other men. But he refused to say he was a hero. He he would say, well, I was one of over 550,000 U.S. casualties in the European theater. Of those, Bill, a little over 100,000 were killed. And he would tell us boys, he'd say, boys, those are the heroes, not me. But all of us boys snuck into his little home office from time to time. And he looked like a hero to me because he had a shadow box with dozens of medals including the distinguished service cross that's the army's second highest military decoration uh he had two silver stars two bronze stars four purple hearts dozens of other medals and bill there were a bunch of pictures of generals that were autographed to him general eisenhower and general young and general truscott writing things like to to the best soldier i ever fought with to a fighting man and so I thought, well, there was a hero there. But then he opened up and began telling us his stories. And, Bill, i got to tell you, frankly, they were unbelievable. I mean, he he told us about going in single-handedly on a secret mission to save the Lipisans. He told us about... Training mules in Italy to deliver ammunition to the to no man's land. He told us about going on horse rescues in southern France and and in Morocco. He told us about doing dressage training in in Italy. He told us about becoming one of the the uh, just a, a a great equestrian. He told us about playing bridge with General Eisenhower, and he told us about appealing the decision to not let officers stay in the Army. And we all listened. We were mesmerized. But quite frankly, it just seemed unbelievable. But then he began opening up to – he was a Boy Scout leader, and he was a college – beloved college professor. And he began sharing with colleagues and students and friends. And Bill, the stories were consistent. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. They don't vary. And then when he passed away in 03, uh, he left a military a locker and when we opened it up there was a treasure trove, his uniform, his writing uniforms, four hundred and fifty letters to his fiancee and to his mother and his father, three history books that had all of the stories that he told us of him, plus additional medals and additional citations. And I I was just shocked. So, Bill, what i this is a long answer to a short question. I just decided to start typing those letters out. Some were typed, some were handwritten, and they fit into a chronologic order. And then I started putting in the war accounts that I found. As I traveled to archives and found more information, I put that in and ended up with a, a rather long document. It's over a million words. Uh, but I'm in a writing club with some guys, and some of our listeners may know the name Jerry Jenkins. and mm-hmm. Jerry- writing club, and he was looking over my shoulder at the manuscript, and he said, uh, I said, Jerry, I'm thinking about maybe writing a war novel about this. He said, why a novel? I said, it was just unbelievable. I mean, these stories are truly unbelievable. And he said, "Well, this is what I've learned through his 200 books he's written. He said, uh, fiction has to be believable. Nonfiction has to be Unbelievable. Your stories are unbelievable. Write a nonfiction book. And 16 years later, it finally saw the light of day.
0: Wow, Walt. I've got a four-word response with a brief punctuation mark between the four words, and that's this. Phil Larimore, comma, war hero.
1: Yeah, he would disagree with you
0: because— uh, I get it, but what you've just described and told me, he's in the, he's in the war hero category.
1: Yeah, and and he's not alone. Uh, The difficult part of of this book was he fought with so many heroes. He fought alongside Fussy Brits, a Medal of Honor winner. He fought alongside Audie Murphy, a Medal of Honor winner. Uh, He fought along dozens of men that were distinguished uh, service cross winners in Silver Star and Bronze Star. Winners. Uh, he, he he fought along hundreds, alongside hundreds of men that were Purple Heart. And the and the reason is Bill. That you know, if I say D Day, what do you think of? Um,
0: I don't. I don't want to give the wrong answer. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but everybody, you know, you, you say D Day, everybody thinks Normandy, right?
0: Uh, well, that's that seems to be the obvious answer.
1: Um, yeah. And, and that was the Northern front of the European theater of operations. But what most people haven't heard about, or they have forgotten about is the Southern front. Mm. And the Southern front had five D days. Wow. The Northern front had one battle of the bulge. The Southern front had two battle of the bulges. The Northern front had one Hurtgen forest. The Southern front had two amazing mountain forest battles. Uh, Oftentimes I'll ask people, what was the first European city liberated? And they'll say Paris. And, indeed, it was liberated by the northern front guys in August of, of 1944. Well, the southern guys are a little bit resentful because they liberated Rome in June of 1944. But, Bill, they liberated it on June 4th and 5th. And so when all of the papers around the country were getting ready to put them on the headlines, you know, these great big uh, headlines that Rome had been liberated uh, that those papers were due out on June sixth and guess what happened on June six Normandy happened, mm. so they, they got pushed right to the back. The northern front guys fought three hundred and thirty six days and and their battles were horrific, no doubt about that. but the southern front guys fought nine hundred and thirty one days. The third Infantry division on the southern front. Lost had more casualties than any of the 90 divisions active in World War II, and they have the most medals of valor of any division in World War II. But, but they were just they were just forgotten. And so this book was originally called uh, Forgotten No More, and it changed as it was being written. But one of my hopes and goals is that the memory of the forgotten front in Southern Europe, that these guys' sacrifices, their suffering and their successes will be forgotten no longer. Mm -hmm. We'll take a little break. We're talking to Walt
0: Larimore. He's written a book called At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. Be right back. listening to an Encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. We are hearing about an amazing story from Walt Larimore. He's written about his dad and it's called At First Light a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. And, Walt, well, I want to find out a little bit more about Dad. I mean, he was uh, three weeks before his 18th birthday, he so he becomes the youngest candidate to ever graduate from Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning, and now he's already on a beachhead in 1944 and put in charge of an ammunition pioneer platoon in the 3rd Inf- Infantry Division, their job to deliver ammo to the troops on the front lines.
1: Yeah, horrific job. In oh. fact, Anzio was, uh, many historians say that it was worse than World War One uh, as far as the trench warfare. The dad was the second lieutenant. He was the youngest, as you said, the youngest graduate ever from officer candidate school. He was 17. He was the youngest, uh, army officer. He was inducted on his 18th birthday. And, um, the youngest frontline officer in World War II, as well as one of the most decorated soldiers in World War II. But but when he landed on Anzio as a second lieutenant, the average life expectancy of second lieutenants was 21 days. I mean, it was horrific. You mentioned the 3rd Infantry. Uh, average Army divisions about 17,000. That infantry division had over 35,000 casualties. I mean, 29 Medal of Honor winners. It was just ugly, horrific fighting. And these A&P guys, the Ammunition and Pioneer guys, had to work all night long. They had to deliver ammunition not just to the front line foxholes and trenches, but actually had to lay wire in no man's land and and lay mines and diffuse mines in no man's land, literally sometimes between 10 and 15 yards away from the enemy. And so if a flare went off, they had to hit the ground because they were dead men walking if they didn't. And that's where Dad came up with the idea of, of using mules. He said mules are smarter than horses. They're more sure-footed than horses. They have a sense. They know where mines are, and they avoid them saving men's lives. And they had this innate instinct ability that when a flare started, when a German shot a flare up, one of these flares that would light, the whole battlefield, those mules would lay down, and the men would, men would lay down right behind them. Wow. But like all of the young men that went, they, they thought about being heroes and courageous and having adventure and being warriors. But When they got on the battlefield, Bill, the first night, one of Dad's privates and mine blew up right beside him and right beside Dad and blew off this man's head. And at that moment, war became real, and it became horrific. And what I found is that most of these men fought for, for their buddies, to protect their buddies. They fought, sure they fought to protect freedom and to save liberty and to liberate uh, the Italians, the Africans, the French, and the Germans from a horrible, oppressive political regime. But, but mostly they fought to get home to their parents and to their girlfriends. And thank goodness he was one of them that did so,
0: uh, the the story is, this is so hard to believe because I can't imagine what your hour-to-hour life is like when you're in that dangerous of an environment with so many casualties and how your world must change so instantly when someone that you know and care about and are alongside gets killed and in a graphic, horrible way. Well,
1: I mean, uh, he, he describes in his letters men beside him being shredded. He describes projectiles cutting guys in half uh, within yards of him. He describes artillery that was purposefully shot into the trees, particularly in France and Germany, knowing that the, that the projectile would, would blow up into thousands of white, hot pieces of shrapnel that would literally shred the flesh and bone of anybody it came in, in contact with. It was just horrific, horrific fighting. And, and so I wanted to be able to project the horribleness of war, but the bravery of of our men. Uh, you know, I, I always heard Tom Brokaw call, call those guys the greatest generation. And Bill, I thought that might have kind of been hyperbole, you know, I mean, great way to sell books, but I wasn't so convinced about it until I studied them. And I tell you, I am. And I think readers of this story are going to relive those battles. Uh, they are graphic, and, uh, but that's the reality of war. And, and Bill, you know, my first 40 books were off of the Christian market. This is a, a secular book with a wonderful, if you like romance novels, you're going to love the romance in this book. If you like military history or World War II, you're going to like that Part of it. If you like animals and particularly horses, you're going to love that part of it. But it does use some fairly graphic language, some four letter words, always spoken by the men who use those words, never gratuitously. God's name is not taken in vain. That's not something I would ever do. But there's not a lot of it, but there is some. There's a disclaimer at the front of the book for anybody that's read my other books to know that. Uh, For parents that are going to let their children read it, the book. You need to know know about that also. Certainly no gratuitous sex or anything like that. But this is a real book about real heroes who saved the world from, from amazing oppression.
0: Walt, I would love for you to continue the story of your dad when he is in uh, uh, Italy and southern France and maybe even going across the Rhine River into Germany. And he is now involved in some of the most intense combat that's ever taken place.
1: Bill, you're right. The, the frontline men and their brothers in combat faced and conquered every day. Fear, heartbreak, dread, chaos, stench, casualties, wounds, unimaginable mm. opposition, because at every front in Italy, France, Germany, they were fighting an army that had been digging in for years. Many times they faced battles they feared would end in an inevitable defeat or certain death. They sacrificed the daily comforts that most of us consider e- e- essential. Um, and, and they did that willingly. I mean, they sacrificed their tomorrows for our todays. And my admiration for my my dad, the men that he fought with, the men that led them, the nurses that cared for them, he was hospitalized several times. In fact, one of his hospitalizations in northern France, uh, he was hospitalized next to a guy named Audie Murphy, who some say is the most decorated war hero in World War II, and he and Audie became good friends. They they recovered together in a hospital in southern France, and Dad actually got to uh, observe Audie fall in love with a charge nurse and actually... Uh, uh, proposed to her, she did not accept that <laughs> proposal. But to, to give you a sense of just how difficult, because this this division, the third division, fought in every front in, in in Europe. They fought in in Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia and Sicily and Italy and France and Germany and Austria. I mean, those guys were just amazing. But the war, the 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 winter of forty four forty five was the worst recorded winter in Europe in 50 years. In in fact, historians say it made Valley Forge, which was really bad in the Revolutionary War, look like a day at the beach. And uh, our listeners will know the historian Stephen Ambrose. He wrote Band of Brothers and Citizen Soldiers. And when he described one of the Southern Front battles that was like their Battle of the Bulge, it was called the Battle of the Colmar Pocket. And there was a battle on the Colmar Pocket called the Battle at La Maison Rouge, the the Red House. And Bill, the U.S., the Allies, the G.I.s came within a fingernail of losing that battle. And if they had lost that battle, they would have likely lost the war. And none of us have heard of it. And one of the reasons is. The battle was kept under wraps for a long time because there were some poor command decisions made. But I found Army college professors that were studying this, a dissertation on it, and then my dad's letters, and, and was able to expose the story. But anyway, Stephen Ambrose says this. He says, that battle was fought in conditions so terrible that they could only be marveled at, not really imagined. Only those who were there can know. More than once, in interviewing veterans of the January fighting, when I asked them to describe the cold, they involuntarily shivered and turned. Wow! Stop. Oh, that is incredible, Walt.
0: All right, we need to take a little break, but when we come back, I want lots more of, of this—the um, details of this. This is absolutely fascinating. I mean, if I'm at an outdoor baseball game and there's a light, a little bit of a light rain, I get, I get all bothered. I'm thinking, I can't imagine the misery they went through. Walt Larimore is my guest at First Light is his book. We'll be right back. Listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat
1: performance.
0: Welcome back. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot already. Uh, Walt Larimore is my guest. His book is At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero his bravery, and an amazing horse. And while, uh, right before we went to break, we were you were talking about the uh, weather conditions. And, you know, it's one thing to be in a situation where at any given second you can lose your life, but then in the midst of all of that suffering and that anxiety and that stress, you're in a horrifically difficult uh, weather environment that just would, I think, would just make everything triply miserable.
1: Oh, no question about it. And it was compounded, Bill, by the fact that the men had moved so fast in their invasion of southern France that they were not expected to be in the mountains by the time winter hit, and so they had no winter clothing they had no oh, wow. snow or snow camouflage mm. uh, it was It was just extremely difficult, and yet they persevered and 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 they won that battle, and that set them up. To prepare to cross the Siegfried line in Germany, that was a line that ran from the northern sea all the way down to Switzerland, it was about four hundred miles of extremely fortified positions. Hitler did not want to fight a two front battle he didn 't want to fight the Russians on the east and the French on the west and certainly not the Brits and the english and, and, and the and the americans but um, so so he spent years and Hundreds of thousands of marks uh, Preparing this massive line Designed to keep tanks out Armor out People out Hundreds of thousands of mines And yet these guys skillfully navigated that Siegfried line And then began to race across Germany um, You know, for the last month of the war It was a a really uh, momentous time for Dad For a couple reasons One was that he was an equestrian. Uh, His commander of of the 30th Infantry Regiment, Colonel McCarr, was an equestrian. Uh, The general who was in charge of the 30th Division, Lucy Truscott, was an equestrian. And the U.S. Army had gotten some rumors that the world population of Lipizzan stallions, those famous dancing horses from Vienna, Austria, were getting ready to be wiped out. And Bill, a real quick side note on that story uh, the Yalta Convention between uh, FDR and Churchill And uh, Stalin Was that the Russians Would liberate Czechoslovakia And so they had, they had Suffered horribly The Russians had had starvation And as they swept across Czechoslovakia They would kill and eat Anything they came across And they came across a, a trailer With over 20 of these gorgeous White Libeson stallions And they killed them, and they made stew out of them. So that's kind of fact. Fact B, in 1938, Hitler decided, you know, he wanted to make the perfect race, right? Funny, the kind of tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan race, and here's this short, pudgy guy. But he he wanted the perfect race, and he wanted the perfect horse for the perfect race. And so he had his vets gather all of the royal breeds, Frisians, and Andalusians and Arabians and thoroughbreds and uh, Berbers and Cossack stallions and liposons into horse farms, mostly in Czechoslovakia, so he could breed them to come up with a perfect horse. And he had decided Liposons were going to be the perfect horse and had gathered all of them into a, into a farm in Czechoslovakia. So the U.S. Army heard rumors from the Nazi vets saying, please come save these horses. They're going to be killed. And so uh, Dad's commander asked him on April 2nd and 3rd, 1944. Would he be willing to do a secret mission, fly with a pilot? He would not know the pilot's name. The pilot would not know his name. He would not have identification or dog t- tags. If he was shot down, he would be considered AWOL. If he was killed, he would be considered not part of the service. He would have no life insurance for his parents. And He agreed to, to take an almost 200-mile flight, land in a forest, Uh, where they were met by the Czechoslovakian resistance. Uh, Once they landed, they actually ran out of of gas. Dad had been trained as a glider pilot, and so they were able to glide that plane right in. And then he saw the the Lipizans. He met the head vet. He got to ride a Lipizan. He got to ride a thoroughbred horse and identify the Lipizans and then took that information out. When it got to General Patton, he approved an illegal, an international law, illegal, Mission Called Operation Cowboy To go in A, a cavalry unit Went in And walked those forces I think it was 80 miles Out of Czechoslovakia And all but one of those one of those forces lived They saved the Lipizzans. But then the next day I'm sorry Five days later uh, uh, April 8th One month before the end of the war The war in Europe ended May 8th That's VE day But on April 8th A group of his men Were surrounded by Germans and um, he went in on a tank to, to save his guys, and on that tank lost his leg, almost lost his almost lost his life. And the last part of the book are the battles he fought after the war, particularly the battles he faced being an amputee. Amputees were. Disregarded, they were disreputable they were they were considered degenerates less than less than human, not only by their commanders but often the women that he he met as he he went through one year of intense rehabilitation, and in fact, may have been the guy that actually invented horse therapy at the hospital he was at, but anyway, uh, he decided that he wanted to fight the army 's um, Policy that said if, if you're an enlisted man and you were an amputee, you could stay in the army if you if you had a job offer, but officers were washed out because you were considered less than human. You certainly weren't considered officer material, and so he fought. Uh, he he recruited senators, congressmen, General Eisenhower, President uh, uh, Harry Truman, and he fought this up to a final appeal. I don't want to give away the story, Bill, but a lot of our listeners may have watched the movie All All the Good Men. And the two stars of that were Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. And the the highlight of that movie is the court scene uh, where the, the two square off. Dad's court case was a lot like that. And I was so blessed. I actually found the transcript of that trial in the National Archives. And it is Shocking, but because uh, of how he was treated as an amputee by his commanders, because of the way he was treated it, it, in those days, if you were a, a war hero if you if you had a uniform and a bunch of medals, you could have dates three times a day for years. But as soon as he would have a date with a woman, they would reject him because because he was an amputee, and it it devastated him emotionally and it devastated him spiritually and his letters home described some interactions that he had with a army chaplain uh, a sweet wonderful christian man and he, he wrote his mom he, he if i could just read that bill do we have time for oh yeah for absolutely so dad has a series of conversations with the chaplain he was really depressed and this was he wrote what the chaplain uh told him he said son your wound will either make you a bitter person or a better person. It will either harden your heart or soften it. You will either be a person chased for the worse or one who chooses to make the world better. And in my opinion, son, the worst disability in life isn't being disabled. It's being disabled with a bad attitude. The Germans smashed your leg, but don't let them shatter your heart, your talents, your gifts, your will. Or your faith in God and his plan for you. And son, he has a plan for you, but the choice of discovering it is up to you. And that guy, that guy set dad on a new course of trusting God, even in the midst of storms, and then finding out what God had for him. And like most of the guys he fought with, when he came back, he left the war behind. He still talked of his nostrils being tattooed with odors, and his nights being disrupted with horrible nightmares. But those guys got married, and they were loyal, almost all of them, to the same wife for all of marriage. They loved their kids. They loved raising their kids. Now, they were strict. They were strict. But they were as much coaches as they were critiques of of their kids. And they went into jobs, and everybody Dad fought with, who I interviewed or talked to their families, stayed in the same job, winning the highest awards of excellence their entire life. This was the most amazing generation. Wow.
0: So I'm fascinated, Walt, with some of the connections you've made doing research for the book. That must have been uh, quite a joy to be having fellowship with other people like yourself.
1: It was incredible. I met uh, only three of the people he fought with, but the children of all the people he fought with, uh, readers will, will long remember Ross Calvert. Ross uh, was a, 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 a one rank ahead of Dad, trained him in OCS, and then they fought together throughout Europe. And then when Dad came back uh, to fight the battle, uh, to stay in the Army when he was assigned to Fort Myer and Arlington, Ross was head of the, the military honor guard there. They played bridge with General Eisenhower they They uh, were in charge of the honor Guard at White House events, and so they got to meet Harry Truman and have dinner with with him after after White House events and actually, Truman was a World War one hero, and he loved to play the piano and sing, and they would sing as the caissons go hmm. marching marching along but uh these amazing connections and so Ross Calvert, for example i was you can find a lot of people on the internet, but I couldn't find. Ross Calvert III. Uh, I did find Ross Calvert the V, and so I called, I called him up in Phoenix, and this woman answered, and I explained who I was, and I was researching this book, and could I talk to Ross Calvert? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, well, but I'm writing this book, and I'd, I'd love to know if there's any records that he might have. She says, he doesn't have any, and uh, he can't talk to you. And I was just quiet for a second because I was, I was really stunned, and she said, well, he's three months old. <laughs> but his, his, his daddy is Ross Calvert the Fourth, and he'll want to talk to you.: Oh. Okay. Ross Calvert the Fourth had met my dad and knew him, and he said, "Let me connect you with my dad." and I, I uh, have not met him face to face, but Ross Calvert the Third and I have shared hundreds of hours of phone calls and communication, and his daddy's records and his daddy's letters added incredible color. To, to this book, and also actually explain some things that happened at Maison Rouge that, that I didn't know and that the historians uh, didn't know. Of interest, even though Ross Calvert and my dad were really professional bridge players, they played for money. And Eisenhower, all of his command staff had to play bridge. He was considered by the president of the Philippines, Eisenhower was one of the best bridge players in the world. So when they were at, at Fort Meyer in Arlington together, Eisenhower was general of the Army, a five-star, and they would play bridge once, play bridge once a week uh, together. Well, I never saw my dad play bridge. My mom did. Ross Calvert never saw his dad play bridge. Wow. Neither of our dads taught us how to shoot a gun. Neither one of our dads took us hunting. And both of these men were amazing equestrians, and neither one of them ever took us to a horse. I mean, when they left the war, they left it behind. And, and my hope, if I could just say this real quickly, would be as we head towards Memorial Day, no question, every one of our military men and women of our veterans deserve to be remembered. They deserve to be honored on Memorial Day, especially those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. But, Bill, I think it's long overdue to have a special shout-out for those who suffered and sacrificed on the southern front of Europe. I mean, almost all of them are gone. They've graduated to glory but as General Truscott, their, their commander, said, we cannot look back to them if we don't look forward to the future for which they fought and died. And so as we celebrate Memorial Day, I hope all of our listeners amongst, uh, amongst the hamburgers and the, the parties will take some time to remember our veterans and maybe even tell a story about them. Truly is Memorial Day as a time to remember those who have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Walt, I'm
0: going to take a break. When I come back, I have several more questions for you. I'm so glad to have Walt Larimore as my guest. He's written a book called At First Light. It's a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. It's all about his dad. Be right back. Listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Well, Larry Moore is my guest. He's written a book called At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. And, Walt, when you were right before break, you were talking about your dad and all of his skill set. Yet, despite that, he never took you guys or taught you how to ride a horse or shoot a gun or all that. Was that a little bit of a disconnect for you? It really
1: was. But I found out that this wasn't unusual Okay. Uh, for, for those guys. Uh, they really concentrated on uh, their marriage, their children, uh, rebuilding their lives and their careers. He became. He became one of the world's most renowned cartographers, map makers, published several books. In fact, my daughter and I, Bill, uh, were traveling up to New York City. And Kate, my daughter's a, a, a bibliophile. She loves books. So she wanted to go to the New York City Library. It's a beautiful library. So we went into it, and she said, Daddy, let's see how many of your books they have. So we went to the card catalog. This was back when they had card catalogs. <laughs> Put up her name, Larimore. And there were none of my books there, but there were three books that my dad wrote, and it was just a wonderful revelation because I didn't know that he had, had written those those books. Uh, he and Mom were very involved in church, uh, in a student union church there on campus. He was very involved in Boy Scouts. But I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, and forgive my voice, I've got a little laryngitis developing from the cold, But but— and so I told you earlier that Barb and I became Christians at college through the ministry of Campus Crusade. And so we at Campus Life meetings, we would sing songs that you sang at those meetings. And when you shared your faith, you shared the four spiritual laws. And mm-hmm. there was a certain way that that community of young Jesus people sort of reacted with each other. And I didn't see that in my mom and dad's lives. I really questioned their spirituality, I really wondered if they had a personal relationship with God through Christ. And and one evening after I came home from a date with Barb, actually, um, I, I was sitting down talking to him, and I decided to confront him. I said, Dad, um, I, I know that you're an active church person, and I certainly was as a kid, but do you really know God? Do you know him as a person? I was really concerned for my dad. And, and to his credit, instead of getting angry or blowing up, he fought for a second. And then he, he told me this, Bill. He said, you know, while in World War II there was this popular phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. In fact, he said, I remember in OCS them telling us that less than 1% of the men on the front, front lines were atheists. I mean, once you got into war, atheism dissolved. Uh, and in the heart of war. Wall. He said, That's where I learned to pray. That's when I learned to pray without ceasing. And I found that all of my men did exactly the same the same thing. And he said, The Lord kinda gave me something. He said, Let me share it with you. So he pulled out his wallet, he opened it up, and he had a folded piece of paper that I still treasure. And he read this to me, a little poem. He said, No shell or bomb can on me burst, except my God permit it first. Then let my heart be kept in peace. God's watchful care will never cease. No bomb above nor mine below need cause my heart one pang of woe. The Lord of hosts encircles me. He's the Lord of earth and sea. And what an encouragement! I mean, uh, he he taught me that true spiritual faith, a true relationship with God uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus is manifested in our individually, each one of us being controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit in such a way that true spiritual faith fills us and overflows from our hearts and into our actions. He, he would say, you don't wear your faith on your sleeve in this man's army, son. <laughs> you wear it in your actions, not just your heart but your actions, and that was a man who died, a happy man. He was satisfied. He was full of God's spirit, Uh, but what was sad was uh, when he died, uh, despite uh, his history, despite his medals, despite his heroism, the Army could only come up with two elderly VFW, veteran of foreign war, Folks who came to the to the funeral at the national cemetery, uh, cemetery, and they played a cassette of taps there from a, like a portable boombox, and it wasn't that they the army didn't care, didn't want to honor his fantastic feats on the battlefield, but at that point, Bill, the country was losing more than a thousand soldiers a day, and there was just no way to keep up. And I, I remember, I remember. As he was lowered into the grave at the National Cemetery, there were tears of gratitude just streaking down my cheeks. And when I thought to myself, I said, Dad, I always loved being your son, but now more than ever, I'm really honored by it. And I'm so grateful this book has finally seen the the time of day. I'm grateful for the amazing people that have endorsed it. I mean, you mentioned General Petraeus at the beginning, but Coach K., uh, Read it during last basketball season in three days. Trisha Goyer, Dan Reeves, the, the famous Super Bowl champion and, and Super Bowl coach, read it on his deathbed. I didn't know that. And General Boykin at Family Research Council, Cal Thomas, the uh, uh, the, the editorialist that's seen around the country, Jerry Jenkins, uh, 24-time New York Times bestseller. Uh, but I think my favorite, favorite, was from uh, Pat Williams, He co-founded the, the Magic, the, the NBA team, the Magic. And Pat wrote this. He said, I love World War II books, and none is better than At First Light. Wow. It's like a combination of Band of Brothers and Warhorse. or perhaps a mixture of Unbroken and Biscuit, a mesmerizing page-turner not to be missed. And boy, was I blessed by that endorsement.
0: So good. Well, I was uh, curious because it sounds like your dad was pretty tight-lipped about his war experiences, and then he starts to open up uh, like you were talking about uh, at his 50th anniversary. Am I recalling that correctly? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, Did he tell any of these stories to your mom?
1: Yes. He told them to mom. He told them to scouting friends. He told them to to colleagues at work. He began to open up about it. He started going to reunions. But Bill, I think this last message. Let me give our viewers a couple last messages. Number one, the the elders in your life, the elders at church, the elders that you may visit in nursing home, each one of them has hidden stories, forgotten stories. Ask questions and help them record those stories for those that will come behind them. And number two, don't depend upon texts and emails. If my dad had had texts and emails, I wouldn't have this book. He wrote letters. And it's been an encouragement to me and my brothers to start going back to written communication, to cards and written letters, because those will survive time. And that's something we can each do. And carpe diem. I am not the sharpest tack when it comes to being a husband. But as I've begun to write more letters and notes to Barb, it's changed our marriage. As I've handwritten not typed handwritten more letters to my kids it's changed my relationship with them and that may be one take-home from this book that would be really redemptive for all of us mm-hmm.
0: that is uh, such a great point i've i've been a fan of that for a long time so thank you for reminding us of all of that uh any um any last takeaways uh, for us we've got a couple minutes left
1: uh well it's memorial day so it's time for us Memorial Day, D-Day, June 6th, which is <laughs> just the Northern Front, a Veterans Day coming up uh, November 11th. Uh, so as as we celebrate our Independence Day, our country is so politicized and it's so split now. But we can look back on the heroes that have delivered to us mm-hmm. freedom, and, and we can – tell their stories. So for those of us that are a little bit further down the line, to find stories like this that we can share out of the barbecues, that we can share at the pool, we can share on July 4th, we can share Memorial Day and Veterans Day, to not forget, to never forget the shoulders on which we sit, the the footsteps in which we walk. I don't know if we're going to keep our freedom and liberty. I pray that we do, Bill. But I hope as we celebrate our continued liberty and freedom on these holidays, especially this Memorial Day, my hope and prayer are that the heroes who fought and died will not be forgotten any
0: longer. Yeah, well, it's been so fun to hear about the story of Phil Larimore, uh, who is this war hero, but he also got to be your dad.
1: How sweet is that? Uh, I I am blessed. But we're all blessed. By our moms and dads. And, and sometimes they were difficult, right? But the Bible tells us, Moses says, the first commandment with a promise is we should honor our mother and our father, and that will will portend a long life for us. And so uh, Father's Day is coming up also. And so it's time for each of us, even if we if our dads are still with us, to to honor them with a handwritten note. And if they're not To honor their memory. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, spending this time. It's been great. Walt Larimore has been my guest. His book is At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. We'll take a short break and be right back.